0: To the Nauticast Podcast, the one through chapter by chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire. I'm one of your hosts, Emmett, also known as Pork Quentin. And I'm your other host, Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And welcome to the 186th episode of the Nauticast titled The King's Justice Part One An Analysis of a Storm of Swords Davos Four, in which Davos gets out of jail. That's good. But then Axel Florent threatens to kill him unless Davos gets on board with his plan to kill a bunch of civilians for no reason. That's bad. But then Stannis rejects that plan and makes Davos his new hand instead. That's good. But then Melisandre shows up to try and convince Stannis to burn Edric Storm. That's bad. But then, eh, well, you get the idea. Can I go now? You sure can. (laughs) So as you can see by the title, part one... We're doing it again, folks, back on our bullshit. We are splitting up this particular chapter. Often done that in the past with Davos chapters. In my defense, I know I have a sickness, but in my defense, this is a, a particularly long and dense chapter. We both have a ton of great stuff we wanted to say about it. So we're going to be splitting it up into two episodes to do it justice and also not to make you suffer unduly through a you know 18-hour episode. So for this uh, episode, we're going to be going roughly halfway through the chapter, right when Stannis uh, kicks Axel Florent out of the room and faces Davos alone. And then we'll be dealing with the second half of the chapter. So Davos being named to the hand and then confronting Melisandre. We're going to be doing that for our next episode.
1: If people thought that losing Jeff meant the Stannis and Davos discussions would get any shorter, I'm sorry to say they're sadly mistaken. They might even
0: get longer. In fact, I am thrilled to say they were, they were, they were mistaken. We'll see. We'll see if we can keep ourselves to one episode for the next Davos chapter. We'll see. That's unfortunately a very good one too. So our spoiler warning, as always, prepare to be spoiled for all published books, the five novels, the three Dunkin' Egg novellas, the histories, interviews, Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones and House of the Dragon, the television shows, anything and everything. Our question this episode comes from our patron David Dodds, who asks, I recently finished the Dunkin' Egg novellas and I fell head over heels for them. I've enjoyed them as much, if not more, if that's even possible, than the main series. After some extensive YouTube videos, I feel that George will deliberately make Dunk the unsung hero of A Song of Ice and Fire that will make beating the others possible. I'm thinking of the tragedy at Summerhall in particular. My question for you is will you guys ever make a series on these three novellas? I'd love to hear your and Manu's take on them. Love your podcast. I'm on my second listen through because it's just that good. Keep up the fantastic work. Much love. Well, thank you so much, David, for the question and for the nice words. Uh, Well, yeah, we'll see about doing a Dunkin' Egg series down the line. I would definitely not be opposed to that. We'll see how things shake out. I won't be too much longer with my Lord of the Rings episodes, so we can definitely revisit the idea. But yeah, what do you think of uh, Dunkin' Egg just just in general, Manu? Obviously, we won't do a whole episode on it right here, but uh, what what are your kind of the broadest thoughts on those novellas? Well, I very much like them, but I'd like to start by sharing my journey
1: with them. Um, because as I first got into a song of ice and fire and blew through the novels, I'm like, oh, these Duncan Egg novellas exist, but they weren't really collected in any meaningful way. They weren't at a very affordable price on like Amazon at the time. Mm-hmm. But you know what existed? Comic adaptations of Duncan Egg. So I got the first one for uh, The Hedge Knight, and it turns out without George's prose and descriptions and generally just his way of writing the story just kind of fell flat to me. Like I picked out kind of what was going on with Baylor, Breakspear, um, and then the Duncan Egg relationship, but I didn't really get any meaning from it. So I just kind of bounced off Then I'm like, well, unfortunately, there's just not a version that's kind of resonating with me. But then, of course, in 2017, 2018, when they compiled the existing three Duncan Egg novellas into the night of the seven, a Night of the Seven Kingdoms, um, I consumed that and I was like, holy cow, this is every bit as good as the main series. It doesn't have that same kind of length and depth that makes me love A Song of Ice and Fire, but in, in and of themselves, they are as good as anything that George has written, um, and I love them to bits. Um, I would love to cover them for this. Um, I think it's something I would love to see adapted to television, assuming we're just going to get Thrones content till the end of time. Um, I think it's something that lends itself great to um, maybe an HBO storytelling uh, television
0: series. Yeah, I read Duncan Egg—so I, I, I read The a Song of Ice and Fire for the first time around the time Feast for Crows came out. I kind of heard about it with the hype, and my mother was reading them and recommended them, and obviously fell in love with them pretty quickly, and only turned to Duncan Egg as part of the long wait in between Feast and Dance, which looks so quaint now uh, by comparison. Uh, the first two Duncan Egg books had come out then. Right, I think Myst- Mystery Night was a couple years after I started reading these. Uh, but yeah, I I liked them immediately— and in a way that was very specific to kind of my nostalgia for stories like this, like they felt like stories I had read when I was younger, not necessarily in terms of the actual story, but more just the kind of the atmosphere and a character like Dunk was just very familiar to me from kind of more, more bittersweet and wistful stories, less, less horror shows than A Song of Ice and Fire and so i was i was very into them on kind of a kind of a lighter level i uh, only later did i kind of start to think about them in terms of where they might be going and what the point might be and then as david says that i think is where george is going to be tying or at least intends to tie this into the kind of the larger the magical bes- behind the scenes structure going on with the prince that was promised and all the attempts to make that prophecy come real because uh Dunk, in all likelihood from what we've gathered about Summerhall, ends up saving uh baby Rhaegar along with Eris with and Raela. So he kind of ensures the continuation of the Targaryen line, for better in Rhaegar's case and worse in Eris's case. And so that, that's is is the payoff in all likelihood for what he says in uh the Hedge Knight after his trial by combat ends up getting Baylor Breakspear killed, and Dunk thinks, oh how could, you know how could I ever be worth the the death of a prince or how could the foot of a common man like me ever be worth the the, the death of a prince? And I think the answer to that is he ends up uh, ensuring that the, the prophecy ends up being fulfilled against the others at least by helping those people out of the fire at Summerhall. And in a way, he's similar to Davos. That's why I picked this question for this episode because Dunk has certain things in common with Davos in terms of being a prominent peasant-born character who rises to a high position and kind of has his... His one, his one nobleborn friend, who was kind of his entry past the people who would like to keep him down, and a lot of differences, obviously, uh, in terms of Dunk versus Davos, but also in terms of Egg versus Stannis. Egg is a lot more kind of likable and and sympathetic, in part just because we meet him as a kid. But again, we don't know the details about Summerhall. But in terms of where in terms of where Egg ended up, it might not be that different from where Stannis ended up in terms of the uh, things going horribly wrong with fire and a desperation to make prophecy come true so the, it might ended up uh, the characters might end up kind of converging in that same place and that that i think is is very interesting to think about the duncan Egg series as a whole but yeah they're they're wonderful just for being shorter smaller doses of what we get out of Ace Wealth. like the sworn sword is great it's it's like it's a mini feast for crows basically as many people have pointed out very similar in tone and theme so yeah, great stuff. I think it's it doesn't feel like a side quest at all. It feels like it, it's worthy of its own thing, and uh, yeah. And we'll we'll see. Maybe we'll uh, have some episodes down the line. Watch this space. We could definitely do some Duncan Egg ups. So, thank you so much again to David for the question. If you'd like to ask us questions, we are forced to answer here on the NotaCast podcast. Head on over to patreon.com slash ASOIAF. Sign, sign up for our Patreon, where patrons also get early access to our episodes, inclusive episodes, access to the Nata Slack, and a bunch more benefits besides. But I am eager, even more eager than usual, to get to the chapter itself this time. It's a favorite of mine. We are here with a synopsis for A Storm of Swords, Davos 4, part one. When last we left Davos, he was, sh- he was stuck sharing a cell with Lord Asshole. I mean, Alistair Florent. Now, you know what? I was right the first time. Lord Asshole Florent hears voices. Davos assumes it's one of the guards bringing them dinner. And about time, too. Davos is so hungry he could cannibalize an onion. But Lord Asshole thinks that Stannis and or has finally sent for him. Turns out, it's Alistair's brother, Axel Florent, Castellan of Dragonstone. Axel, Lord Alistair said. Gods be good. Is it the king who sends for me, or the queen? No one has sent for you, traitor, Sir Axel said. Lord Axel begins to bleat that he's no traitor, but Axel ignores him and summons Davos instead. Davos, quite sensibly, asks if Axel intends to burn him, but Axel says only that Davos has been sent for. As Davos leaves his cell, Axel commands Lamprey the Jailer to take the torch. Leave the traitor to the darkness. No, his brother said. Axel, please, don't take the light. Gods have mercy. Gods? There is only R'hllor and the other. Sir Axel gestured sharply, and one of his guardsmen pulled the torch from its sconce and led the way to the stair. Damn, I might have been calling the wrong Florent an asshole. Davos keeps up the questioning, wondering if Axel is taking him to Melisandre. Axel replies that he's taking Davos to Stannis, although Melisandre is never far from the king. Davos reaches for his lucky finger bones, only to remember that they're gone. But he still has his hands, strong enough to wrap around her throat. Yeah, buddy, because trying to kill the Red Woman has worked out so well for you so far. They climb the stairs together, as stone doors give way to wood and arrow slits begin to appear in the walls. Finally, Axel opens a door and ushers Davos across the bridge toward the Stone Drum, the central tower of Dragonstone. Davos takes reassurance from the sound and smell of salt water praying for the water and the wind to give him strength. Although he also notices a big old night fire down in the yard, surrounded by the Queen's men praying to their Red God. Not an ominous sign at all. Speaking of ominous signs, they're still halfway across the bridge when Axel stops and dismisses his men. He tells Davos that if it were up to him, both Davos and Lord Asshole would burn for their treasons. Davos doesn't give a shit what Axel has to say. He knows he'd never betray Stannis. Axel shoots back that he has seen it in the flames. Relor has granted him the ability to see the future." Wow, R'hllor, I think you need some higher standards. Anyway, Axel says that he has foreseen that Stannis will sit the Iron Throne, lol, okay, and that he, Axel, will be the new Hand, lol, okay, citation needed on both of those. Axel explains that he has made a plan with Salador San, who also needs some higher standards, and that both Sala and Queen Selyse have encouraged Stannis to name Axel his new hand. But Stannis is still too depressed after his defeat on the Blackwater to do anything but brood. Okay, that one checks out. Axel says that if Davos can convince Stannis to stick that handpin on Axel instead, Axel will make sure that Davos has a shiny brand new ship when they sail again. Davos studies Axel's face, thinking it over, but then... "'If you think to betray me,' Sir Axel said, "'pray remember I have been Castellan of Dragonstone a good long time. "'The garrison is mine. "'Perhaps I cannot burn you without the king's consent. "'But who is to say you might not suffer a fall?' "'He laid a meaty hand on the back of Davos's neck "'and shoved him bodily against the waist-high side of the bridge, "'then shoved a little harder to force his face out over the yard. "'You hear me?' "'I hear,' said Davos. "'And you dare name me traitor?' Oh, Axel, really should have quit while you were ahead. They find Stannis, where else, at the table that Aegon the Conqueror had carved and painted in the shape of Westeros. The king is wearing his signature fiery crown and otherwise boring clothes, but the man himself looks different to Davos, as if he's aged a decade in the span of a few months. He's lost weight, his beard is going gray, and his skull is visible under the skin. Wow, being the king seems fun. But when Stannis sees Davos, he does something unexpected, to say the least. He smiles. So the sea has returned me, my knight of the fish and onions. It did, Your Grace. Does he know that he had me in his dungeon? Davos went to one knee. Rise, Sir Davos, Stannis commanded. I have missed you, sir. I have need of good counsel, and you never gave me less. So tell me, True. What is the penalty for treason? Ah, now there's the Stannis we know, and... Well, love might not be the right word. Let's stick with no. Davos doesn't know what to say. He doesn't want to condemn himself. And anyway, Stannis knows better than anyone what the penalty for treason is. Stannis repeats the question, and Davos has to respond. The penalty for treason is death. It has always been so. I am not a cruel man, Sir Davos. You know me. Have known me long. This is not my decree. It has always been so, since Egon's day and before. Damon Blackfire, the Brothers Toyn, the Vulture King, Grandmaster Harith. Traitors have always paid with their lives. Even Rhaenyra Targaryen. She was daughter to one king and mother to two more, yet she died a traitor's death for trying to usurp her brother's crown. It is law. Law, devils. Not cruelty. Well, I guess we know what Stannis took away from season one of Hot D. Hashtag team Green all the way, apparently. Davos finally realizes that Stannis is not accusing him of treason, but rather, Lord Asshole Florent. Rather than feeling relieved about that, Davos is heart-sick, and says that Lord Asshole didn't mean any treason. Stannis argues that Lord Asshole not only sold him out, but also Shireen, plotting to marry her off to Tommen. The king's voice was thick with anger. My brother had a gift for inspiring loyalty, even in his foes. At Summerhall, he won three battles in a single day and brought Lords Grandison and Catherine back to Storm's End as prisoners. He hung their banners in the hall as trophies. Catherine's white fawns were spotted with blood. Grandison's sleeping lion was torn near in two. Yet they would sit beneath those banners of a night, drinking and feasting with Robert. He even took them hunting. These men meant to deliver you to Eris to be burned, I told him after I saw them throwing axes in the yard. You should not be putting axes in their hands. Robert only laughed. I would have thrown Grandison and Catherine into a dungeon, but he turned them into friends. Lord Catherine died at Ashford Castle, cut down by Randall Tarley, whilst fighting for Robert. Lord Grandison was wounded on the Trident and died of it a year after. My brother made them love him, but it would seem I inspire only betrayal. Even in mine own blood and kin, brother, grandfather, cousins, good uncle… Again, some things never change. Rise and fall, battles and shadow babies, and Stannis is still right here doing what he does best, blaming Robert for all of it. Stannis informs Davos that most of his surviving followers have bent the knee to Joffrey, and those that remain on Dragonstone are beginning to give up hope. Axel asks for a chance to prove he's made of different stuff than his brother, and declares that victory will inspire the men once more. Victory. The king's mouth twisted. There are victories and victories, sir. But tell your plan to Sir Davos, I would hear his views on what you propose. Axel looks ready to puke at the very idea of explaining himself to Davos, but he pulls up his slide deck presentation nonetheless. This is the plan he mentioned earlier, the one he came up with alongside Salador. They want to sail to nearby Claw Isle, whose Lord Celtigar is among those who fought for Stannis on the Blackwater, but has since knuckled under to the Lannisters. And what will Team Stannis do on Claw Isle? Steal everything that's not nailed down, says Axel, and burn the rest, including the people. Stannis comments that it's logistically feasible, it might serve as a warning to Tywin that the war is not over, and above all, it'll keep paid for a little while longer. The king turned back to Davos. Speak truly, sir. What do you make of Sir Axel's proposal? Speak truly, sir. Davos remembered the dark cell he had shared with Lord Alistair, remembered Lamprey and Porridge, He thought of the promises that Sir Axel had made on the bridge above the yard. A ship or a shove, what shall it be? But this was Stannis asking. Your grace, he said slowly, I make it folly, aye and cowardice. Yeah, that's our Davos. Axel blusters in response before Stannis tells him to shut his piehole so Davos can explain himself. Davos says that while he's on board with the idea of making war on their enemies, there are no enemies to be found on Claw Isle. Axel says they're all traitors there, just like Davos himself. Davos ignores that, and acknowledges that Lord Celtigar did indeed abandon Stannis after the battle was lost, but argues that doesn't cancel out the fact that Celtigar supported Stannis when the king called his banners. He stood by you at Storm's End when Lord Renly came down on us, and his ship sailed up the Blackwater. His men fought for you, killed for you burned for you. Claw Isle is weakly held. Yes. Held by women and children and old men. And why is that? Because their husbands and sons and fathers died on the Blackwater. That's why. Died at their oars or with swords in their hands fighting beneath our banners. Yet Sir Axel proposes we swoop down on the homes they left behind to rape their widows and put their children to the sword. These small folk are no traitors. Davos Seaworth, voice of the people. I'd vote for him, but he's about to get a new job anyway. Axel says that the small folk are traitors because Celtigar's surviving soldiers bent the knee to Joffrey along with him. Davos says they didn't have much of a choice. It was that or die, and not all men are strong enough to choose death. That argument, what a surprise, doesn't impress Stannis, who says that every man owes loyalty to the king, even if their lord says otherwise. A desperate folly took hold of Davos, a recklessness akin to madness. "'As you remained loyal to King Eris when your brother raised his banners,' he blurted. Shocked silence followed, until Sir Axel cried, "'Treason!' and snatched his dagger from its sheath. "'Your grace, he speaks his infamy to your
1: face!'
0: Davos could hear Stannis grinding his teeth. A vein bulged, blue and swollen, in the king's brow. Their eyes met. "'Put up your knife, Sir Axel, and leave us.' "'As it please your grace, it would please me for you to leave,' said Stannis." Take yourself from my presence and send me Melisandre. And that is the first half of A Storm of Swords Davos 4. Such good stuff already, but I can't wait to get to the second half. What did you think, Manu? One of my all-time favorite movies is Hayao Miyazaki's Spirited Away, where
1: the young girl protagonist Chihiro goes on a mystical, life-changing journey, all in the confines of one enchanted bathhouse. Each step Chihiro takes feels like an adventure all its own, and that's how Davos for A Storm of Swords feels. Davos travels only from the Dragonstone Dungeons to its main keep, but in that trip, lives change? Hell, kingdoms may be rising and falling based on the events of this chapter. George really is at his finest, turning the minute into the grand, not unlike what Stannis does to Davos in naming him Hand of the King. Davos has to literally climb out of the hell he made for himself and face down both his savior and his devil, not to mention a really annoying Florent. How does the Onion Knight do it? By being true to himself, by speaking bluntly, maybe foolishly, but most importantly, righteously to his one true king. The old smuggler has been on the ropes thus far through a storm of swords,
0: but when given an opening, he lands a haymaker. So you all know me. You know what I like. (laughs) My favorite chapters in The Song of Ice and Fire tend to be the ones with wild imagery, like the House of the Undying, or the ones that do interesting things with structure, like uh, Sam's first chapter in Storm, where it keeps the longer flashbacks keep happening to the Fist of the First Men. And this chapter is neither one of those things, but I love it. It's probably my favorite Davos chapter, give or take the ones in White Harbor. And in terms of Storm of Swords, it's top tier for me. It's right up there with with the Red Wedding chapters and that Sam chapter I just mentioned. In this case, it's not about the structure. It's not about the imagery until the very end, as we'll get to next time. It's just about the drama, the rock-solid dramatic bones. It's theater, basically. I think you could write an excellent stage adaptation of Davos' story in Storm of Swords, because it's mostly two or three people talking in a room. And this chapter especially is a masterclass in dialogue. Every word feels so carefully chosen to draw you in, make you think about what you would say, how you would handle this. Davos 4 touches on so many weighty themes—honesty, loyalty, the ethics of war, the nature of power—despite being, again, just two or three people talking in a room, it feels so expansive, like George manages to contain the entire world in Davos's moral dilemmas. Like, I keep saying Davos is my favorite POV in A Storm of Swords, and this chapter, right here, this is the number one reason why. Immediately, George thrusts us
1: into the dichotomy of Davos and his cellmate— Lord Alistair has not adjusted to his imprisonment, his actions still sudden, he's still waiting for deliverance. He lurches at the sound of voices, but Davos thinks it's just another day, like any of the endless days before in the bowels of Dragonstone. They're just bringing food, which Davos actually relishes, as his description of beef and bacon pie and mead seem to indicate he's a prisoner of another type. Surely someone meant to rot away in the dungeons would have been given plainer fare or no food at all. Davos himself is not a prized hostage, holding no value to anyone aside from Stannis, and Stannis doesn't have to barter to gain Davos' service.
0: The thing about jail is that it's boring. Obviously, it can also be many other bad things, many worse things than boring, but even if you're not in physical danger, even if you're getting decent food and medical care as Davos is, There's just nothing to do, and the human brain isn't set up to handle that for long. You wake up, sit around, eat, shit, sleep, wake up, sit around. Davos doesn't even get to hit the gym, and even if there was a prison library on Dragonstone, he can't read. Not yet, anyway. It locks you into a circular routine with no escape. That's why so many stories about crime and punishment are about absurdities. I think about Kafka's The Trial, or that scene in Clockwork Orange where the prisoners are out in the yard just literally walking in circles. Of course, this isn't Davos' first rodeo. He's been in jail before, and in much less comfortable cells than this one. He's used to the routine. As the chapter starts, the prisoners hear voices getting closer, and Davos assumes it's the guard they call Lamprey with their dinner. That's the routine. That's what happened yesterday, and that's what'll happen tomorrow. Davos' stomach starts grumbling right on time, because imprisonment is, above all, habit-forming. But Alistair is not used to this. He thinks of this as an aberration. It's a mistake. It's a nightmare from which I will surely soon awake. So when he hears the voices, he's the one who realizes that this is out of the ordinary. Ironically, Davos is the one to escape. He's the one whose perspective is going to be challenged, while Alistair's only escape from the loop turns out to be a horrible, fiery death. Their destinies pass like ships in the night. The old hand enters the cell, and the new hand leaves. So yeah, Alistair has the right of it as Sir Axel Florent arrives with
1: Lamprey. Something is out of the ordinary, but that's about all Alistair's right about. After realizing it's his brother, he immediately shoots himself in the foot by saying, God's be good. Axel will chide him later for uttering this phrase in his presence. As we'll see later with Davos, there is a way to negotiate yourself through the Queen's men
0: and Melisandre and even Stannis himself, but Lord Alistair has zero tact for that. Alistair just assumes his family connections will save him. Salise would never let me rot in here, he says, her own blood. And it's his own brother Axel who's come to visit them. Everything's going to be okay for Lord Asshole. But then Axel slaps him down, brutally. No one has sent for you, traitor. He doesn't even use Alistair's name, which is a running theme in this chapter. Davos later notices that Stannis refuses to call Edric Storm by name. Why? Because that makes it easier to dehumanize him, and therefore, easier to kill him. Same reason Jamie doesn't name his horses anymore. It makes it hurt too much when they inevitably die on him.
1: For his repeated blustering, Axel punishes his older brother by taking the torch, the light, away from him, something the Red Woman threatened the Onion Knight with back in Davos 3. Lord Alistair Florence candle is all but snuffed out of this narrative here, though we will learn later that he was burned alive in exchange for helpful wins to help Team Stannis go north. And that torch, that fire being denied Alistair is with Davos now, leading his way up the stairs and to the king, and as Melisandre will reveal in the second half of the chapter, Davos is part of the fire god's plans now. Davos will start this chapter as prisoner of darkness, but by its end will be conscripted into Rolor's army proper. When Davos is beckoned by the turnkey, he turns to Sir Axel instead. All he wants to know is if he's bound for the pyre, He could have chosen to die on his little rock amongst the spires of the Merlin King, a death in the sea that's true to Davos' life and beliefs, and feels of a peace with Hoster Tully's funeral last chapter. Instead, he's worried that his resurrection in Blackwater Bay was only so that he could suffer the worst death imaginable, being burned alive as part of Melisandre's schemes. As it stands, Davos is still part of Melisandre's schemes, as she will be there, according to Axel. She'll always be there with the king, and it is he who sends for you. Davos reflexively grabs for his finger bones, finger bones he no longer has, symbolizing his luck, luck he no longer has. Maybe he'll make his own luck, like Harvey Two-Face Dent, or maybe he now believes there's no such thing as luck, like a wise and Ben Kenobi. Davos, from this point, Forward succeeds on his acumen, his knowledge and his knowing of his king and the peoples of the Seven Kingdoms. In fact, he faces bad luck for much of the story going forward. The bad storms when sailing out of Eastwatch has Salador San putting him in his own little boat to the sisters, and more bad luck when the frays and tendrils of House Lannister reach White Harbor before he does. He can no longer lean on his luck as a
0: crutch. He's got to think and negotiate his way out of this on his own. Axel calls Alistair a traitor again when he orders his men to take the torch away. And George emphasizes how horrible this is by referring to Alistair as his brother in this moment. No, his brother said, just, to, just so you don't forget, Axel is doing this to his own flesh and blood, the man he grew up with. Melisandre threatened to take the torch away from Davos, but it was only to prove a point, and she left it to demonstrate her good faith. Axel takes it away, abandoning Alistair to the darkness. Solitary confinement in total darkness. That is monstrous. I would go so far as to call it torture. You can't even see. The world vanishes, becoming even emptier than it usually is in prison. I flinch just imagining it. Melisandre didn't do that, because she sincerely believes in her god of light and life, even though she gives birth to murderous shadows in his name. Here we see a running theme for this book and a dance with dragons. As dangerous and terrifying as Melisandre is, the Florents are worse. They're the monsters she has unleashed every bit as much as the Shadow Babies. They don't even believe on the level she does. They're just using the framework of Relore as a way to enhance their own power. An easy way to separate the outgroup from the in-group. Even when the outgroup includes each other. <laughs> Alistair is a total hypocrite. His last line in the story is praying to the gods. Plural, like you pointed out. In his panic and despair, he's forgotten the script of the Red God, because a script is all it ever was to him. Axel, meanwhile, seizes on his brother's slip-up as proof that he's a hopeless traitor. Gods? Ah, gotcha. There's only Relor and the Other. That's what we believe this week. <laughs> Even though the followers of Relor are among the few to take the Others seriously, the irony is that Axel winds up imitating the Others by plunging Alistair into the darkness, his own personal long night. So Axel is no hero. He's no savior of light and life. And this is the guy letting Davos out of jail? Davos is right to expect the worst, asking if Axel is taking him to Melisandre, with the implication that Davos is about to be burned alive. Out of the frying pan and into the very literal fire, he'd be better off staying in jail. Axel says he would very much like to burn Davos alive, thanks for asking, but he can't, because Stannis is the one who sent for Davos, and that connection between the king and his favorite vassal keeps Davos alive, all through this chapter and beyond. We
1: spent all of Davos three in his cell, so the climb up and out of the dungeons would be a long and painful one for the sedentary knight, who likely hasn't clocked more than a few dozen steps each day in his prison. His Fitbit probably hates him. <laughs> I enjoy George taking a moment to put us in Davos' shoes here, quite literally, to bring to life the process of bringing movement back to your body after being inert for so long. Davos' stock rises astronomically in this chapter, but to really appreciate it, we have to linger just a bit more in how long he spent at the bottom, how his body got used to it. Objects at rest stay at rest unless put in motion, which is happening here. After the long stair climb, Davos and Sir Axel find themselves on a long bridge connecting to the stone drum. It's night outside, the veil of darkness hanging over the castle just as it did the dungeons, but throughout the chapter the darkness is peppered with fire, be it the torch in the dungeon, the night fire in the courtyard, or the red woman later in the chamber of the painted table. But what catches Davos' attention is the smell of seawater, the clean cold air, the freshness of it. It's a rush of the senses, something George played with in Brand 7 A Clash of Kings as well, the sensory overload of the wolves outside compared to the sensory bankruptcy Brand felt in the crypts below. Wind and water give me strength is very true to Davos's sensibilities, being a sailor and smuggler after all, but it's also very elemental. Davos is about to go face to face with the fire nation, so he's reacquainting himself with air and bending. These are the antithesis of fire, or perhaps how you snuff out a fire. It's of a piece with all the elemental principles that defines Melisandre's worldview, light and dark, day and night, fire and shadow, ice and fire. Elsewhere in A Song of Ice and Fire, chapters like Tyrion's and Sansa's are purely founded on the actions of men, of living beings engaged in living politic. But everything on Dragonstone feels primordial, like the very forces of nature, of good and evil, are animating all that goes on. It's how George is able to ring an epic out of Davos climbing
0: some stairs and crossing a bridge. Yeah, there's that very kind of chthonic sense to everything, almost occult when you get into Melisandre, and, and Davos stands out as like the one exception to that rule. As he said in Clash of Kings, his attachment to the faith of the Seven is more sentimental than anything else. And while he was briefly a warrior of God earlier in the book, after his vision of the mother, that ended with Axel throwing him in jail. So instead, Davos prays to the wind and the water. He knows them. They saw him safely through his life as a smuggler. Like you said, there's something primal about it. As well as pragmatic. Davos' vision of the mother was probably a hallucination. R'hllor might or might not be real, but the sky and the sea sure are. The smell of salt, the cold, clear air in his lungs. This is the stuff of life to Davos, not the abstract binaries the R'hllorites are obsessed with. Above all, nature is truth for Davos. We see that all through his story, and a lot of this chapter is about seeking the truth, or finding ways of avoiding it when the truth is inconvenient.
1: All that talk of primordial forces, that's not to say the petty politics of people don't pop up here. Halfway across the bridge, Sir Axel cuts off his escort so he can privately call Davos a traitor before telling the Onion Knight he must support Sir Axel to be Hand of the King, as it's what's best for Stannis's cause, of course. Davos brushes off the insults and deftly stays mum. He lets Sir Axel get out all that he wants about how he now sees shit in the flames, including a Davos betrayal, which, lol. How the queen has urged Stannis to name Axel Hand, how he and Solidor San have come up with a plan, how Davos can get a ship out of all this. Only the last part really catches Davos' attention, but even so, he mislikes all that Axel is laying down. When we met Davos Seaworth, he was a seafarer and smuggler through and through a man of the sea, and in A Clash of Kings, his main contributions are smuggling Melisandre under Storm's End via skiff, and then being an admiral in Stannis' fleet at the Blackwater. But it's very possible that Davos the Sailor died in that battle. The Davos of Storm and Dance has run aground. Instead, now he navigates the Sea of Lords and Land. He will soon be Davos the Hand, and I think right here George dangles a ship in front of him to represent an alternative route for him to take, the safe and familiar one, which he will pass over. Axel doesn't just call Davos a traitor, but also a smuggler, which I think exists to remind Davos of his place in the class structure of Westeros. Davos is a nobody, Sir Axel is a somebody, so the former should listen to the latter. Davos is on thin ice anyway, and absolutely no political capital would be lost if Davos was disposed of, which Axel threatens to do as he holds the Onion Knight over the bridge. Davos only then responds to Sir Axel, simply saying, Yeah, I heard you." He betrays nothing else of his thoughts to this unimpressive loser. In Arya's chapters, we've talked about Sirio's instructions on the true seeing, of Arya taking the time to look at what's actually happening in front of her, what may be happening right underneath the surface. Davos' chapters feel like the auditory companion. Just like he shuts up and listens to Sir Axel here, upon arrival at White Harbor and Dance, he finds himself a
0: spot at the Lazy Eel, where he sits in a corner and just listens to the gossip and rumors. Yeah, that's great. Instead of hand of the king, he's the ear of the king. Davos Davos just listens. It's appropriate that Axel stops Davos halfway across the bridge, literally in between, to reflect how Davos is caught between his loyalty to his king and his deeper, older values, which Stannis sometimes betrays. When Axel says Davos will betray Stannis, Davos says he'd never do that, and they're both half right. Davos will go behind Stannis' back, as Alistair did, sending Edric Storm away against the king's wishes, But unlike Alistair, Davos doesn't abandon Stannis' cause itself. Instead, he reinvigorates it by sharing the letter from the Night's Watch asking for help, and advising Stannis to turn north to rebuild his coalition. Where Axel is totally wrong is when he says he can see the future in the flames. What does he see? Well, in a shocking coincidence, he sees himself in charge, as Stannis' hand after the king takes the Iron Throne, which is pretty clearly never going to happen at this point. As Melisandre says a couple Davos chapters from now, any cat can stare into a flame and see red mice at play. This isn't the truth. This is wish fulfillment. Axel is just seeing what he wants to see, pretending that his own desires are the will of God. Axel says he has a master plan going, which we'll talk more about when he explains it, but here what matters is that he wants Davos to support it. Get Stannis to name me Hand in place of my traitorous brother, and I'll make sure you get a new ship. i had forgotten until this reread that... Davos briefly considers taking the deal. That's smart writing on George's part. An example of how he expands and deepens Davos' character in A Storm of Swords. This makes Davos more than a two-dimensional archetype of goodness. Again, he has a pragmatic streak. He wouldn't have survived for long as a smuggler without it. Davos doesn't like Axel. He knows Axel would prefer Davos dead, but a new ship is nothing to scoff at. It would restore some of what Davos lost. Get him back out onto the wind and water where he belongs. Why not trade favors? But then Axel keeps talking, threatening to have Davos killed in a more mundane way than fire if he refuses to help. That's what breaks the deal for Davos, specifically that Axel would kill him secretly, on his own, without getting Stannis's consent. As Davos thinks, Axel has some nerve calling anyone else a traitor when he's willing to carry out his own secret assassinations behind the king's back. Axel cannot be trusted, he's only in this for himself so there's no way out for Davos in that direction. He walks into the chamber of the Painted Table with no allies other than the king himself. He has to build on their relationship, which was strong enough that Axel knew Davos would be a useful ally. He knew Davos might be able to sway Stannis, where Sala and Selyse failed to. Davos has no weapons, no riches, and no plan. All he has are his words, his ability to sway Stannis through rhetoric, through debate. It's a political and philosophical crucible, an ethical struggle with both the mundane and the mystical. But even as the author engages with the story's central ideas, all of it is filtered through Stannis, who isn't a POV character. That turns this scene into a mystery, even for the rereader who knows where all of this is going. Because Stannis isn't a POV, he dips in and out of the story. The gaps are important, they're structuring absences. George built up Stannis throughout the first book, before introducing him at the start of the second. Even then, we don't see his relationship with Melisandre develop. We don't see exactly what went down between them regarding the Shadow Babies. Unlike the show, we don't see Stannis during the Battle of Blackwater, nor in the immediate aftermath. In the books, we haven't seen him at all since Storm's End, which feels like a lifetime ago. That was 63 chapters ago. The audience has to infer what's been going on in the gaps, and you can because of what a terrific job George does with Stannis as a character. As with Daenerys, the conversation around Stannis calcified into camps, especially after the show, and I want to cut past the pro-v-con argument at least a little, and talk about the writing itself. I've said it before, I'll say it again, for me, Stannis is the best written character in A Song of Ice and Fire, the one where every sentence, every word, is pretty much perfect. He doesn't appear in the initial pitch letter, and he isn't central to the plot, other than clearing powerful pieces off the board before they can overwhelm everyone else, Renly in A Clash of Kings, and Mance later in A Storm of Swords. So Stannis is important less to the narrative and more to the themes. He's central to what A Song of Ice and Fire is all about. His story is a microcosm of the whole thing. It fits that we often see him stalking around the painted table of Westeros. It's like he's slightly outside the story, looking in on all of it. George writes here that there are windows looking out on all the cardinal directions, north, south, east, and west, like we're atop the world. Not that Stannis is feeling like he's on top of the world right now. Quite the opposite.
1: When Davos finally is presented to Stannis in the chamber of the Painted Table, Davos is aghast at his king's appearance. In the kindest terms, he looks like shit. Stannis looks like a shadow of the man Davos had seen before the Blackwater. His beard was a tangled mess, his bones visible as if he was a white of the others, his eyes sunken into his face. It's a reflection of what the reader thinks of Stannis' campaign at this point. By all indication and opinion, Stannis was beaten at the Blackwater, and his cause looks hopeless against the Lannister Tyrell regime. Sure, Stannis will never surrender, but what hope does he have? His army is a corpse of its former self, his navy sunk into the bottom of Blackwater Bay. And yet for all that, Stannis seems legitimately happy to see his night of fish and onions. A faint smile from Stannis registers the same as a big hug from Robert. And him telling Davos he missed him is the most affectionate words that come out of Stannis Baratheon's mouth, to my knowledge. It's almost odd, then, for Stannis to look like a corpse and yet be the most human and alive that we've seen him.
0: Yeah, I think you struck right to the heart of it there. George has talked about his love of gray characters, about how everyone's the main character of their own story, and Stannis is one of the best examples of that. He's a hero and a villain at the same time, the human heart in conflict with itself. You can see that just in how George reintroduces him here, using his long absence from the stage to frame both the hero side and the villain side. First, the villain side. Stannis looks like a ghost of himself, like he's aged a decade since the last time the audience saw him. He's lost weight, his hair is turning gray, and his eyes are, quote, blue pits lost in deep hollows. It's the classic trope of the ensorcelled king, the king who's been put under some kind of magical spell, like Theoden in the movie adaptation of The Two Towers. It's like everything has caught up with Stannis. Melisandre seduced him to the dark side, killing off Renly and Courtney Penrose, and Stannis went along with it because he thought the ends justified the means. I'm the legal heir. I have a chance to overcome the brothers who always mocked me and got everything I wanted, so whatever I need to do to make that happen, I'll do it. But the battle was their undoing, as Davos thinks. Stannis didn't take the throne, so what was it all for? His ends were snatched away by his brother's ghost, and now he's left alone with the means, eating away at him from the inside. I especially love the detail that his bones are visibly moving around under his skin, like spears trying to cut their way free. What a perfect horror image that is. Like, Stannis is so pent up with shame and rage that his skeleton might burst through his fucking skin. (laughs) Even more telling is that Davos can see the shape of his skull in his face. Like you said, everyone is now counting Stannis out. His son set on the black water, as Tywin put it, and so he looks like a corpse. It's a portrait of damnation. You made a deal with the devil, so now you join the walking dead. And yet, when he sees Davos, Stannis does the most un-Stannis thing you could imagine. He smiles. Just barely, but it's there. A faint smile brushed his lips. I love what you said about it it registering like a hug from Robert in context. Like, the fragility of the gesture is what gives it power. It's like this is the last spark of Stannis' soul. Even more revealing is what he says. So the sea has returned me my knight of the fish and onions. That is not how Stannis usually talks. It's oddly sweet, almost romantic, the kind of flowery, chivalric declaration you'd associate more with singers like Marillion and Simon Silvertongue, very unlike the show, which is also funny when Stannis just turns around and furrows his brow and goes, heard you were dead. Like, he's just kind of factually confused about the situation. I heard you were dead, and now you're not. I can't make sense of this. As Stannis says, he has missed Davos. Davos is basically the one person Stannis likes, which is why it's crucial that Davos is our main POV on Stannis. It cuts through his image, his fearsome reputation, reinforced by the stories other characters are telling about him. So right after the portrait of Damnation, we get this glimpse of Stannis's shriveled little soul. It's a deliberate contradiction, like you said, it's a skeleton reciting poetry. He's a hero and a villain, sharing the same skin. Neither side we're seeing here is the true Stannis, he's both of them at once. The effect is so disarming that it even throws Davos for a loop. As he bends the knee, he wonders if Stannis even knew he had Davos in his dungeon. Because so the sea has returned me my knight of the fish and onions. That does not sound like the kind of thing you say to a prisoner. Like everything else in this chapter, that cuts both ways. On one hand, Davos really wants to believe that Stannis didn't throw him in jail, because Davos has given so much for Stannis and wants to be able to trust his king. On the other hand, if Stannis didn't know Davos was in his dungeon, that means that Melisandre and the Florence are making decisions without him. And we've gotten mixed messages as to who was really in charge on Dragonstone. Alistair went behind Stannis' back, and clearly thought he could get away with it, but Axel says he can't burn Davos without the king's consent. Melisandre burned prisoners alive while Stannis was away at war, but he takes responsibility for that in this chapter, saying that the new Lord Sunglass fled to Volantis after he, Stannis, burned the old one. It's the same ambiguity we saw with Renly's death. What did Stannis know, and when did he know it? Is Melisandre puppeteering him, or is she just influencing him? It's an aura of mystery that fits the image of the shadow babies as Rorschach blots brought to life. You project meaning into them. Since Stannis isn't a POV, the truth is whatever you want it to be, whatever story you tell. So Stannis, as friendly as ever apparently, (laughs) follows up his
1: I missed you comment with the most logical question. What is the penalty for treason? I wouldn't call this a villainous question, mm-hmm. but as a gray character like Emmett just laid out, the relatively warm welcome he just gave is quickly cut by a cold question. Fire and ice, the war forever raging inside Stannis Baratheon. This is precarious footing for Davos. He's just been escorted out of the dungeons, so by most accounts, he's still a prisoner here. Is he being asked to condemn himself or someone else? Just like Emmett said above... Davos doesn't really know who's in charge, or who knows what even. If Stannis didn't know Davos was being imprisoned, one false word could condemn himself. As with Axel, he doesn't
0: say much at first, he just repeats the question to get a little more out of Stannis first. Yeah, it's one of, one of my favorite teachers said in high school, it's repeating the question, always a good idea, gives yourself just a little more time to think. <laughs> and yeah, this is why I say Stannis is the best written character. Like I said, it's been a long time since he actually appeared. For a lesser character, it might take a while to reacclimate your audience. But as soon as Stannis asks, what is the penalty for treason? <laughs> you're like, yep, that's Stannis. Couldn't be anyone else. And you're right, it chills any warmth in the room. It works the same with Jon Snow when he becomes our, when he becomes our POV on The One True King. At first, they're actually getting along. Stannis praises Jon's heroism, believes his story over Jeno's slints, but then Stannis talks shit about Rob. Like, yeah, fuck that traitor, he should have stayed home, maybe he'd still be alive. And George writes, quote, The harsh words had blown away, whatever sympathy John might have had for Stannis. Because Stannis never got along with his brothers, he tends to discount other people's family bonds. Here, Stannis doesn't even mention Davos's four dead sons, blown to smithereens while trying to sit Stannis on the Iron Throne. That's indifference to the point of cruelty and it demonstrates that Stannis still hasn't learned how to work a room, which always holds him back. But, and maybe this is just me, it's also very funny that Stannis' is acting like Storm's End was yesterday, and he's just (laughs) picking up the conversation he and Davos were having there about the nature of loyalty. As Jon thinks in A Dance with Dragons, Stannis with a grievance is like a big dog with a bone in his mouth. He just gnaws at it until he wears it down to splinters, and for, for me that's funny in a grumpy sitcom dad kind of way. But with Davos, Stannis doesn't just issue declarations. He's interested in what Davos has to say, and so engages him on a more Socratic level. Asking questions, trying to get a dialectic going where different ideas brought together can give birth to truth. After all, as Davos thinks, kings are all too aware of the penalty for treason. They're the ones who invented it. So why is Stannis asking? What's he driving at? All through this conversation, Davos is looking for the trap. And the audience is too, because again Stannis is not a POV, so we can only guess at what he's thinking. On reread it comes off to me like Stannis came into this meeting, already planning on naming Davos his new hand, but he is disturbed that Davos tried to kill Melisandre, so he has to test the Onion Knight first to see where his loyalties lie. If Davos will tell the truth even when he might be condemning himself, then he's worthy of Stannis' trust.
1: And when it becomes clearer that Davos isn't the treasonous subject in question, Davos does what Davos does. Speak plainly. Death is the penalty for treason. Stannis' response feels burdened by the purpose of law. Yes, death is the penalty and always has been so, the cruelty of it having nothing to do with Stannis himself. Stannis runs down the various Rebels of Infamy since the Seven Kingdoms were forged, which I'll do real quickly before throwing a question back at my co-host. First we have Daemon Blackfyre, one of the more notable figures from outside of the Song of Ice and Fire saga proper. Daemon Blackfyre was the bastard son of Daena Targaryen and Aegon IV, though before the latter was crowned king and would become known as Aegon the Unworthy. Daemon would found House Blackfyre and be the greatest of the Blackfyre pretenders, which is backgrounded in the duck and egg tales we talked about earlier and gets spelled out in more detail in the World of Ice and Fire. The brothers Toyn's treason was trying to avenge their brother and Kingsguard knight, Sir Terence Toyn, who had been dismembered by Aegon the Unworthy when he was found in bed with his mistress, Bethany Bracken. The brothers took up arms, but were slain by Prince Aemon the Dragon Knight. This would begin the ruin of House Toyne. The vulture kings are too numerous to recount, but represented self styled kings who generally took up arms against Targaryen rule in the Red Mountains and Dornish marches, supposedly with secret aid from House Martell and other major lords in Dorne. As for Grand Maester Harith, We got nothing. We only know he's a traitor because he is named here, and we're taking Stannis' word for that, which gets us to the last of the named traitors, Rhaenyra Targaryen, daughter of one king and father to two others, as Stannis puts it. Now, having fire and blood and House of the Dragon, we know Rhaenyra is both the rightful claimant and the more sympathetic claimant, which, to be fair, is a low bar with (laughs) Aegon II. Especially in hot (laughs) day. But Stannis also says she tried to usurp her brother's throne, seemingly taking Aegon II's side as the rightful king. Now, all questions about gardening aside and the tale growing in the telling, Emmett, where would Stannis be in the Twitter
0: discourse between Team Green and Team Black? Uh, Stannis would be glorious on Twitter. It's a shame. (laughs) That can't be. It would be, I mean, a lot of A Song of Ice and Fire characters would be fun on social media, but Stannis is up there for me. And yeah, it sounds from this like he's Team Green, right? Which really makes no sense. If you look at Stannis' campaign, he's got similarities to Rhaenyra, at least in terms of how things start. Stannis is the legal heir on Dragonstone, the throne gets stolen out from under him by people with more direct access to the trappings of power, and he's so pissed off by that that he starts crossing ethical boundaries in order to take what's rightfully his. A lot like Rhaenyra. So why does Stannis call her a traitor who got what was coming to her? I think there are two main reasons. One is misogyny. Stannis is deeply uncomfortable around women, with the sole exception of Melisandre. Look at the way he always calls "Selice woman, as though it's an insult. A lot of that has to do with how Stannis built himself up as the anti-Robert, creating a persona in contrast to his party-hard older brother, who loved the ladies. But it's also Stannis's worship of the stoic military lifestyle, which we see stamped over all of his decisions. His plain clothes, his functional tent, his taste for literal salt water, which always makes me laugh. That's how Stannis, that's when Stannis is having a wild night, he springs a little salt in his water, oh yeah. Women have no place in that self-image, and so Stannis dismisses out of hand the idea of a ruling queen of Westeros. The other reason I think Stannis dismisses Rhaenyra's claim is because the stories he's been told dismiss her. She's not part of the official order of Targaryen monarchs. The canonical in-universe histories retroactively cite Aegon II as having been king the whole time in between his father, Viserys II, and his nephew, Aegon III. This is deeply ironic, because that same canon also leaves Stannis out, and as Davos says later in the conversation, Stannis rose in rebellion against the Targaryen regime, so why does he take their interpretation as canon? I think George made a deliberate choice including Rhaenyra among the supposed traitors, the last on the list, the most emphasized one. Because that just shows you that history and law are not the iron objective constants Stannis would really like them to be. They're fluid. They can't enforce themselves. And so they depend on interpretation, which changes over time and depending on the individual. Who were the traitors during the dance? Well, it depends on whose story you believe. And like you, I think Rhaenyra definitely had the more convincing story. So even as Stannis lays out his worldview, he is undercutting himself without realizing it by picking an example that is muddled, to say the least. Davos, having sussed out Lord Alistair, is the subject of Stannis'
1: question, immediately turns to pity. Something I'd say Team Dragonstone lacks, aside from Davos. But what I really like is George returning to that technique he used in Sam 2, when, quote, someone squeaked that the watch could take Gilly's baby to safety. That someone, of course, was Sam, who spoke out of turn, and knowing full well no one wanted to hear it, but it was the right thing to say. It was an instinctual comment from someone who's instinctually good, and Davos is cut from the same cloth. So we get Davos heard himself say, Lord Florent meant no treason. His body and his mind seemingly separate, even though they are united in this belief. Davos is, once again, fairly deft in his wording here. Alistair meant no treason. Not denying that treason had been done, it's the only argument he has, and
0: Stannis, very Stannis-like, sidesteps it entirely because he doesn't care what was meant. Yeah, that kind of argument always bounces off Stannis. It reminds me of a bit in Storm of Swords, that conversation between Jon and Stannis when they first meet. I was talking about earlier when Jon says, hey, I've been talking to Val, and she would like to bring Mance's son to him, let him hold his son. It would be a kindness. And Stannis is just like, why would I do him a kindness? (laughs) And John, I love it, John has no answer to that. Because how do you explain kindness? It's like, it kind of just is, man. I don't know how to get this across to you. And you're totally right that Davos is kind of the only one working on that logic uh, on this island right now. That element of pity is crucial to Davos' character. Pity and mercy. He brought mercy to Storm's End in the form of onions. And while Stannis raised him up to knighthood for that, he also cut off Davos' fingers, showing no mercy for his years of smuggling. Stannis argues he's not cruel to enforce the law against treason. He's merely a vessel for the law, which has always been so, he says. But he is ignoring his own capacity for mercy. The king always has the right to pardon people. It's up to his discretion whether he enforces the most rigid interpretation of the law. And Stannis knows that because he immediately launches into a story about how Robert forgave his own vassals who fought against him on behalf of the Mad King. If he could do that, Why can't Stannis forgive Lord Asshole Florent? Because this isn't really about the law. It's about Stannis' belief that he is unable to rule through love like his brothers, and so must rule through fear. This is part of why I think Stannis is such a well-written character, because basically everything he does and says can be traced back to his primary motivation, which is filling the hole inside him left by Robert. When we were introduced to Stannis in Cressen's prologue, the old maester noted that Stannis kept his beard cut short, as if in response to Robert's wild beard. Stannis was so furious about Renly claiming the crown, not just because the law says Stannis comes first, but because Renly looked so much like young Robert, so it felt like Robert would always do better than Stannis, even from beyond the grave. Young Stannis sacrificed that which was best in him to keep up with Robert, abandoning his beloved bird Proudwing, because it was too weak. Even after Stannis takes Deepwood Mott, and the Northmen begin to flock to his banners, he, it looks like he's actually pulling this off, even then, the mention of Robert is enough to set him off. When someone is about to say what his brother would do in this, in this situation, he just cuts him off and goes, we all know what my brother would do. Robert would gallop up to the gates of Winterfell alone, break them with his warhammer, and ride through the rubble to slay Roose Bolton with his left hand and the bastard with his right. And then later on the march, when Asha brings up Robert, kind of in the same, the same topic, like Robert was known for giving mercy to his enemies, can't you do the same with us? And like Justin Massey like grabs Asha and gets her out of there, it's like, no, 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 that was ill-judged, my lady, he says. Never speak to him of Robert. Asha knew how it went with little brothers. She remembered Theon as a boy, a shy child who lived in awe and fear of Roderick and Meryn. They never grew out of it, she decided. A little brother may live to be a hundred, but he will always be a little brother. In this scene, Stannis brings up Robert completely unprompted, for no reason other than to make himself look bad by comparison. His brothers just live rent-free in his head. Why could Robert win over his enemies? Young Stannis told Robert those men, those vassals I mentioned who backed the Targaryens, they were ready to deliver him to the Mad King to be burned. Yet after taking them prisoner, Robert just eh, let him hang out, throw axes in the yard with everyone else. Why? Robert just laughed. Like Renly would always just laugh. What really infuriates Stannis is that it worked. Those men wound up dying for Robert instead. Robert chose mercy and benefited from it. It's because of his charisma. Robert made them love him, as Stannis says. Reminding me of how Sansa thought about Cersei during the Blackwater, when Cersei said, the only way to rule is to make sure your people fear you more than the enemy. And Sansa thinks, if I'm ever queen, I'll make them love me. Same language. Stannis lacks that charisma. Or rather, he has only a shadow of it. He can only make a few people love him. Hardcore edge cases like Davos and Maester Crescent. Otherwise, as he says, he inspires only betrayal. People seem to find it very easy to turn against him. Stannis never stops to reflect on why he inspires betrayal. Maybe there's something about your Captain Buzzkill personality (laughs) that puts people off? Like Tyrion, Stannis treats his bad reputation as a universal constant. It's a given which makes it a self-fulfilling prophecy. By the end of the book, Davos will nudge him toward a better model. Demonstrate to people why you are worth following. Give them a reason, and maybe they will. But the problem persists, because Stannis looks at his brother's charisma as this alien phenomenon he just can't hope to imitate. Stannis can't master interpersonal relationships like that. Several people who know more about it than me have argued that Stannis is written as autistic that he can't mentally, emotionally make sense of the way Robert and Renly won people over. There is that sense of conversations as a code you can't understand. Social norms don't come easily to Stannis. They're like a foreign language. Regardless of whether that was intentional on George's part, I think it fits Stannis' character as the ultimate outsider in feudal politics, someone who does not have it in him to play the game, and so loses whenever he tries. When Axel tries to butter him up, saying that he's more loyal than his traitorous brother and he has a plan to actually inspire their people, Stannis mocks him. There are victories and victories, sir. I talked about this duality a lot in Clash of Kings. On one hand, a lot of Stannis' enemies really are the worst. Like, his targets do deserve his Mm -hmm. scorn. Axel certainly does. His proposed victory is unworthy of the name. On the other hand, Axel and Salador aren't Stannis' enemies. They're basically the only powerful allies he has left, and it's not good that he acts like he doesn't care what they think. As always, Davos represents the best in Stannis. The king makes his best decisions when he turns to the Onion Knight, and his worst decisions when he turns away. Here, Stannis forces Axel to explain himself to Davos, which George compares to Baylor the Blessed, making one of his vassals wash a beggar's ulcerous feet. Baelor might not seem like an obvious comparison to Stannis, Baelor was a true believer in his faith, where Stannis is faking it, at least at first. But there's that same sense of duality, where the king can be led down either good or bad paths. One day, Baelor feeds the poor. The next day, he locks up his sisters. The gods flip a coin, as the saying goes.
1: So, Sir Axel presents his plan to Davos, though with an air of disgust. Sir Axel does not appreciate or welcome Sir Davos's opinion, much less his approval. The plan is heinous, of course. Pillage Claw Isle and slaughter the remaining people of House Celtigar. Do a war crime to send some political message that has neither military or political concern for the Lannisters. Hell, punishing the Celtigars in time might be something Tywin himself might do. It reminds me a bit of the constitutional monarch- monarchists during the French Revolution in the early 1790s. Some of them got it in their mind that making war with Austria amidst internal turmoil would bring back everyone together and would sew up the tares in their own political fabric and rally the country around nationalism and war. Axel Florin tries to sell his plan on this great mythical imagery, imagery that just so happens to be Stanis's sigil. He speaks of battle-setting, hearts ablaze, and victory is a cure for defeat. It's pretty high-minded oratory in defense of, again, murdering a bunch of family members who lost all their able-bodied men to a war. But this is what Sir Axel knows, the idea of knighthood and chivalry, where you aren't just fighting for one sovereign or another, but for some moral virtue or greater good. There's something dangerous in combining religious absolutism of R'hllor with the romantic view of knighthood that covers up the violent contradictions of chivalry in Westeros. There's a crusader mentality in Sir Axel's plan here. In his words, he plans to leave Claw Isle a desolation of ash and bone. Though I'd say Sir Axel is on one end of the spectrum compared to Beric and his men, who are doing the opposite of putting small folk to death. Religion and chivalry together, a sword without a hilt. The only strategic value in Sacking Claw Isle seems to be the plunder. Lord Saltigar was outwardly cheap, but privately he hoarded wealth. This is probably Salador San's main interest. As Stannis says, it keeps him employed a little while longer. Instead, Stannis will start his northern campaign, which means little riches for poor Salador San, and we'll see him leave Davos to his cause and king early in A Dance with Dragons. And amongst the lists of jewelry and gold are also the mention of a Valyrian steel axe, which, first of all,
0: that's metal as fuck, and a horn that
1: could summon monsters
0: from the deep. Yeah, I would be like, this plan sucks until they mention that horn, and then I would be like, go on, go on, tell me more, where do I sign up? (laughs) No, but seriously, you nailed it. This is just the worst idea on every fucking level. First of all, it's monstrous. These are defenseless civilians we're talking about ones who have not themselves committed any crime against the sacred regime of Stannis Baratheon first of his name. Even calling it a military strategy gives Axel too much credit. This is a massacre, full stop, no better than what the Bloody Mummers are doing in the Riverlands. If Stannis did this, he would lose any right to claim any kind of moral high ground against the Lannisters. Secondly, in political terms, it's pointless. Stannis says that while Claw Isle has no strategic value, it has symbolic value and that it would put Tywin on the defensive, which, no it wouldn't. (laughs) Imagine Tywin hearing that Claw Isle had been sacked. He would just go, oh, that's a shame. Anyway, back to being in charge. Stannis would still be in the objectively terrible situation he describes to his advisors in Davos's next chapter. I have 1,300 men on Dragonstone, another 300 at Storm's End. The rest of Westeros is in the hands of my foes. I have no fleet but Salador Sands, no coin to hire sellswords, no prospect of plunder or glory to lure free riders to my cause. Even the benefit to be gained in terms of plunder or morale is a short-term fix. Before long, reality will settle back in for Stannis's men, and they'll be back to drinking their days away. And while a little plunder might sate Sala for a while, it won’t be enough to get him to risk his fleet and his life defending Dragonstone when the red wines show up. This is the grandmaster plan that Axel thinks makes him worthy of replacing his brother as hand of the king. I think you make a great point that the faith of Relor, as the queen's men are practicing it, combined with chivalry’s blind spots makes for a deadly cocktail. We've got a warrior cast with too much time on their hands and no skills beyond killing, and now we've given them a religion that says they're always right, and their enemies are not only traitors, but servants of the darkness. It's worth noting that Stannis doesn't actually endorse the plan. He says we could get some money out of it, but when it comes to should we do it, he turns it over to Davos. Coupled with what he says later in the chapter about the plan being evil— I think, like I said earlier, that Stannis was never planning on going along with this, and is just using it as a test for Davos. Yeah, I'm with you. I don't think
1: Stannis thinks it's a good idea at all, despite saying it's doable, and it would really only be there to serve as some kind of political announcement for anyone who thinks Stannis is spent. The entire Seven Kingdoms can probably hear Stannis grinding his teeth at the (laughs) idea that he was some spurred dog licking his wounds after the Blackwater. Mm -hmm. But it's what Stannis says to Davos. Speak truly, sir. That matters. Sir Axel had threatened Davos if he didn't throw his weight in support of Axel, but Davos Seaworth is Davos Seaworth. He thinks this plan sucks. When I talked about this chapter feeling like a giant adventure in the confines of a small set, this is one of the moments that cements it for me. Sir Axel and his plan are monstrous, a real monster, and the Onion Knight slays the monster by calling it what it is. He is naming the evil, the horror, smiting it down with his words. The gothic backdrop of Dragonstone makes everything feel much grander than it is. It's a cathartic rush for the reader. There really should be only one emotional reaction to, hey, let's go do some light war crimes to feel good about ourselves. (laughs) And it is satisfying to hear Davos and Story speak to that. There are no enemies there, despite Sir Axel calling them, and Davos himself, traitors. Again, Davos knows he's on precarious footing. Stannis' question about treason can now be applied to Lord Seltigar and his men and the small folk who keep his fief. But he is unrelenting. Lord Saltigar came when he called, led his men to doom when asked, and burned in hell for it. Davos next centers the innocent. The women, the old men, the children. Most of all, the children, which will thematically come up again in the discussion of Edric Storm by Chapter's End. And when Axel says there will also be men who bent the knee, Davos says they didn't have a choice. Which of course conjures the decision Stannis had to make long ago to support his rebellious brother Robert or to stay true to the Mad King
0: on the Iron Throne. This is really where you see how much thought George has put into Davos' character, as the argument Davos makes is very specific to him. No one else in Stannis' camp could speak so forcefully and eloquently on this subject. Davos is not such a goody-two-shoes that he ignores the consequences of telling the truth. As on the bridge with Axel earlier, his pragmatism comes into conflict with his other values. First, Davos thinks about his cell, down in the darkness. He could easily return to it along with Lord Asshole if he says the wrong thing. Then he thinks about Axel's threat. If you don't back up my plan, I'll have you killed. That reminds the readers of the stakes here. It would be very easy for Davos to nod along and say, Yes sir, your grace, Axel's got it right. Hey, maybe you should make him your new hand. He stands to gain a powerful ally, and a new ship. He wouldn't have to worry about being sent back to the dungeon, or shoved off a bridge. So why doesn't he do that? Because, as Davos thinks, this is Stannis asking. And he owes Stannis the truth. Which is a complicated thing to owe somebody. This means more than just blind obedience, which is what Davos was focused on in the last book. King Stannis is my god, he told Salador. We sail his ships, he told his sons. We don't question his orders. That has changed in this book, in a politically powerful way. In A Clash of Kings, Davos was willing to talk shit about the lords behind their back, when Stannis basically forced him to. Now he'll defy Axel to his face, at risk of his own life, because Stannis raised him up, and Davos owes him for that, even if Stannis doesn't like what Davos has to say. So Davos calls it like it is, this plan is both stupid and evil. Like you say, there's a rush to that, someone finally speaking truth to power, making it impossible for men like Axel to ignore the implications of their actions. But Davos has an argument of his own to make, one that's more complicated than his persona, his, oh gosh, I'm just a simple smuggler persona, would suggest. He's not anti-war in general, far from it. Davos is totally on board with the idea that they need to prove they're not finished, come up with a victory to boost morale among Stannis' remaining men. But what kind of victory matters, as Stannis implied. Davos insists that their true enemies are the Lannisters, and only the Lannisters. Fighting anyone else is a distraction. He made the same argument at Storm's End in Clash of Kings. This is a detour, we should go straight to King's Landing. He'll make the same argument again at White Harbor in a dance with dragons, telling Wyman Manderly that his son died at the Red Wedding for the same reason Davos's sons died on the Blackwater. Quote, because the Lannisters stole the throne. There's a clarity to that which is very appealing, even admirable. The original sin is Cersei's coup against Robert. That's what gives us the moral high ground, which we abandon if we focus on anything else, like Stannis keeps doing. <laughs> In the face of Axel's self-servingly rigid interpretation of the law, Davos appeals to humanity and empathy, just like earlier when he said that Alistair meant no treason. Of course Lord Celtigar bent the knee, Davos says. He's not a strapping young rebel like Robert in his prime. He's an old man looking forward to a cozy retirement. And yet, in spite of that, he came when Stannis called. Unlike Lord Asshole Florent, He was loyal to Stannis at the start of his campaign, when everyone was already counting him out. Lord Celtigar stood by Stannis at Storm's End, when it seemed like Renly was about to wipe them all out. He stood by Stannis as they sailed up the Blackwater. But this is about more than Lord Celtigar. It's about his people. The small folk like Davos of Fleabottom. before he became a knight. He still feels like he has more in common with them than with the Florence. Davos points out that the only reason Claw Isle is so weakly defended, the only reason this would be so easy, is because most of the fighting men burned on the Blackwater. They died for you. And now you want to rape their widows and butcher their children? That would be a betrayal of trust. Far worse than Celtigar bending the knee. Those small folk are not traitors. Far from it. My spine tingled when I came back to this passage, like it always does when I read or watch or listen to something really powerful. This is Davos' equivalent of the Brotherhood listing off all the people they've lost in the last Arya chapter. But the Brotherhood were also trying to pin those deaths on Sandor, and they were doing so from a position of at least temporary power over him. Davos is directly speaking truth to power, calling out people contemplating war crimes, and he is doing so knowing it might result in his own death. It's not just an abstract argument either. When he talks about those who died on the Blackwater and those they left behind... He's talking about his own family. He's talking about how he spent his son's lives for Stannis, only for him to be called a traitor by Axel Florent, who didn't even fight. It's a great example of righteous politics, using both logical and emotional appeals to make an ethical case for action, or inaction in this case. It's such a strong argument, and Axel's comeback is so weak. He says that not all of Celtigar's men died heroic deaths for Stannis, A bunch of them survived and bent the knee along with their lord. Okay, that's true. So what? How would you act on that? Is Axel going to go around Claw Isle asking everyone, hey, did your husband slash father bend the knee or die righteously? And if they say die righteously, he's going to spare them? How would he know if they're telling the truth? It's not like we have a list of which soldiers bent the knee and which ones chose death They're all in King's Landing. The reality is that Axel would kill them all regardless. The families of the loyal men would die with all the rest. And even if Axel could make that distinction, it's still such a fanatically punishing worldview. Either you die for us, or your family will die for you. There's no way out. There's no way to live a meaningful life in this death cult with such a twisted definition of loyalty. Davos tries to drag the conversation back toward reality, throwing Axel's own words back at him. Celticars surviving men bent the knee when he did. Stannis can insist all he wants that everyone owes him a personal bond of loyalty, but the reality is that Celtigar's men have a more direct relationship with him. They've always taken their cues from him, not the crown. They followed Stannis because he said so. Now they follow Joffrey because he says so, and I don't think it makes much material difference for them. Stannis knows that. He says as much about Arnulf Karstark's men in Theon's released Winds of Winter chapter, when he's learned that Arnulf has betrayed him, his men are wondering if the Karstark soldiers might be in on it, and Stannis says they did not need to know. They are Karhold men. When the moment came, they, w- they would have obeyed their lords as they had done all their lives. Well, same logic applies here. But like I said, Davos is making an emotional argument, as well as a logistical one, and that's where he loses Stannis. Davos says that not everyone is willing to die for the cause, even if they think it's a righteous one. Some men are stronger than others. That's the reality. Should we massacre women and children in defiance of that reality? Davos thinks that Stannis is a man of iron will who does not understand or forgive weakness. That could be spun as a positive, but here it's clearly being framed as a negative. That Stannis just doesn't understand the people over whom he claims to rule.
1: So this is a Davos chapter by the transitive property that makes it a Stannis (laughs) chapter and in turn also makes it a Robert chapter. Mm -hmm. And the ghost of Robert hangs over our one true king. Stannis had already bemoaned his brother's charisma earlier, his penchant to inspire loyalty amongst even his enemies, such as Grandison and Catherine, as Emmett described earlier. He's the exact opposite of Stannis's diplomatic abilities. Robert could beat his foes in battle, take them prisoner, but feast and hunt with them until they in turn died defending his cause. And Stannis, of course, told him to do the exact opposite of that, to which Robert just laughed like you said. The more applicable politic is Stannis having to choose between Robert, his brother and liege lord, and Aerys, the king gone mad on the Iron Throne. At this point, we know Stannis well enough to understand that he probably beat himself up making this decision, and time has not made it easier. As he's asking the lords of the Seven Kingdoms now to make a choice along the same lines, it all comes down to law and duty. And the unyielding Stannis is king by all rights and laws, despite how little the Iron Throne itself appeals to him. We even get mention of Eris's nickname here, King Scab, and also knowledge that Maegor the Cruel died on. Or was possibly killed by the Iron Throne, ideas that would be expounded upon in The Sons of the Dragon and later Fire and Blood. But for all the talk of the Iron Throne and Eris, let's not lose sight of Davos's courage here, or as he calls it, a desperate folly that took hold of him, not unlike hearing himself defend Lord Alistair. Davos knows his argument about the lack of choice for Celtigar's men won't, wouldn't go over with the king unless he threw Eris and Robert in his face as well. And he's not wrong to call it folly. Stannis' veins bulge at the rebuke, and he grinds his teeth loud enough to be heard from Dorn to the wall. Axel draws steel and names it treason, which again circles back to Stannis' opening inquiry. What is the penalty
0: for treason, sir? This is Davos' big breakthrough, the moment he becomes more than Stannis' lowborn sidekick and is fully realized as a character. He calls out the hypocrisy at the heart of Stannis' campaign, cutting through all the layers of bullshit to the plain reality of it. Stannis keeps dividing the world into loyalists and traitors, because I'm the legal heir to the Iron Throne. But so was Eris II, the Mad King. He was crowned and anointed and all of that shit. Everyone who rose up against him had previously bent the knee to him, including Stannis. If staying loyal to the king at any costs is the most important thing, then how does Stannis justify joining Robert's Rebellion? The only reason that Stannis can now claim to be the legal heir is because Robert didn't stay loyal to the Targaryens. So Stannis and his cronies cannot justify themselves by pointing to an iron interpretation of the law. Not only is it cruel, it's absurd. Axel doesn't even have a counter-argument. All he can do is yell, TREASON! (laughs) Which Davos has not, in fact, committed. Simply telling the king he's full of shit is not treason. (laughs) That just shows how Axel is using traitor as a smear against any and all opponents. It's not a legal term. It's a political category. But it doesn't really matter how Axel reacts. What matters is how Stannis reacts. And at first, it looks like he's going to react really, really badly. (laughs) He's grinding his teeth even more than usual... And again, the the specific imagery I love, the vein throbbing in his head, I can picture that so well. It's all the signs that your boss is about to vent on your ass, and then their eyes meet. George doesn't describe it any further than that, because he doesn't have to. No matter what, Stannis and Davos have this lifeline of respect between them. It's an intense intimacy rooted in how they met at Storm's End. Davos smuggling in the onions that saved Stannis' life, and Stannis responding by both raising Davos up and cutting off his fingers. They've both seen each other at such vulnerable moments, they've both changed each other's lives. Davos isn't just an ordinary vassal to Stannis, and in turn, Stannis matters to Davos, more than the king does to his more fair-weather servants. That's why Davos promised to tell Stannis the truth, even if it tastes bitter, as Stannis says. This connection saves Davos here. He's got an authenticity that Axel does not, which gives weight to his criticisms. And so Stannis kicks Axel out of the room and out of the chapter, so he and the Onion Knight can talk this through one-on-one. Which we will get to next time when we finish up A Storm of Swords Davos 4. And we're going to skip over foreshadowing groundwork in the theory discussion portion for this episode because everything we would want to talk about there has to do with the stuff that's going to come up in the second half of the chapter. So that is going to wrap us up for our first of two episodes on A Storm of Swords, Davos Four. Thank you so much for listening. As always, if you want to drop us a rating or a review on your podcast app of choice, we really appreciate that. It helps people find us. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacastasoiaf, where patrons get benefits like early access to our episodes, exclusive episodes, and access to the Nauta slack You can follow us on Twitter at ASOIaf. Shoot us an email at notacastasoiaf at gmail.com. And you can find me at Quentin on Twitter. And I'm Manu, also known as
1: Manuclear Bomb. We have returned back to Middle-Earth over at my brother, my captain, my
0: podcast. And we are right in the middle of the Two Towers getting ready for the Battle of Helm's Deep. Awesome stuff. I'm so glad you're back to Middle-Earth and to, to jump back into some of the best stuff in Two Towers with Gollum and the Ents coming up to Helm's Deep. Glorious, glorious stretch of filmmaking. So, yeah, that's great. So uh, I have my, uh, my most recent Lord of the Rings episode is out for folks on Book 5, Chapter 9, The Last Debate. My next Star Wars episode, my fourth episode on Revenge of the Sith, is going to be out next for all $5 and above patrons. And then the week after that, we're going to be back here with A Song of Ice and Fire. We'll be wrapping up Davos 4 as Stannis promotes Davos to a job that Davos absolutely does not want. Can't wait to see what he does with it. So thank you again for listening, and we will see you next time for the rest of A Storm of Swords, Davos 4.